welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friends. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and today's podcast, it's episode 65, is getting us thinking about our motives. I keep this running list in my planner of possible podcast topics, and this one got on the list when I was going through a study by Jen Wilkin on the Sermon on the Mount. Excellent study to go through and do with a group or on your own, and I highly recommend if you do it that you get those additional video or even the audios to the series. And again, I'll link to all that. But but week six in her study was titled Righteousness, and it was dealing with our motives matching our outward obedience. So we worked through Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, where it dealt with our motives behind giving, praying, and fasting. Seeking the approval of others is probably safe for me to say that is an area that we all struggle with, and we probably continue to do so. We can be really good at putting on a good front, all the while on the inside, our attitude is not matching our outward behavior. Have you ever been kind to someone outwardly, all the while you were harboring bitterness or anger towards them on the inside? What about thinking the best of others? Personally, I fight a critical spirit. It's an area I continually pray for the Lord to work in my heart to not judge the motives of others. So we're going to dig in here and discuss a bit of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and our motives to impress others with our spirituality or our generosity or our seemingly self-denying life of fasting. But we're also going to touch a bit on how we can be so quick to judge the motives of others, thinking we know what's in their hearts. So as always, this is a podcast episode. It's not going to be exhaustive, but as always, my hope, ladies, is to really get you digging into God's word and determining where you see this particular sin in your life and that you want to seek God's help in making changes in your heart. So God's work of sanctification comes about by continuing to change us more into the image of Christ. Our motives, they need to be brought into obedience to God's word if we desire to see true change in our lives. As we take this time to spend in the Sermon on the Mount and then again in 1 Corinthians 13, my hope is that it will get us pondering and praying and asking the Lord to search our hearts and our heart motives and why we do what we do, and how we judge the motives of others. So let's start digging in here today. So our motives, they're the underlying reason for any action, yet we don't often give them much thought. Motives matter, and they matter to God. God doesn't just desire us to do the right thing, but He desires us to do it with the right attitude. It's really no different. I I think of the example of our children. We want our children to do what's required of them with a right attitude. And as parents, we care what they do, but we also care why they do it. A motive, just looking at the dictionary definition here, it's simply defined as a reason for doing something, especially one that is hidden or not obvious. 
So the heart is the source of our motives. We can be driven by our desire for happiness or pleasure or comfort or love or freedom or respect or even power. And these are usually the reason why we do what we do. Our motives can be good or bad. They can be pure or impure. They can be God-honoring or they could be self-honoring. We get to the heart of the matter here because God's word is all about our motives. It addresses our hearts and what rules them. Proverbs 4.23 tells us the heart is the wellspring of life. When I hear that verse, it kind of takes me into Matthew. And I think of where Matthew says, where our treasure is, there will our hearts be. Wherever I treasure is what I will find myself pursuing. It can take over my thoughts and the direction of my life. If I want comfort, I'll do everything I can to avoid anything that makes me uncomfortable, whether it's difficult people or situations or being inconvenienced. To determine what we're motivated by, just ask yourself just some questions like, what do I want? What makes me happy? What makes me depressed? What do I need to be comfortable? What do I hope for or crave? There's many more questions you can ask yourself. These are just some good ones to get us thinking. See, we can't separate our motives and desires. They work together. John MacArthur stated in his commentary on Matthew that the location of our treasure indicates where our heart already is. So whatever our treasure is, it's going to occupy supreme place in our affections. So again, Matthew 6.21 tells us for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A favorite online study site of mine, study site called Precept Austin, shared um, just this quote on this verse I want to share. They said, the word for heart in Matthew 6.21 is cardia. It's spelled K-A-R-D-I-A. That's the Greek word for heart in that verse. It does not refer to the physical organ, but it's this particular word, it's used figuratively in scripture to refer to the seat and center of human life. The heart is the center of the personality, and it controls the intellect, emotions, and will. No outward obedience is of the slightest value unless the heart turns to God, end quote there. So we can easily give the outward appearance of obeying God while inwardly our hearts are hardened. Our motives aren't pure and God sees and knows this. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Listen, we may deceive others. We may even deceive ourselves, right? But we're not going to deceive God. Pure motives are only possible as we surrender our lives to the Spirit. It's only as we allow the Spirit to control us is when we will truly desire to please God and not ourselves. So I'm going to talk a bit about our about kingdom motives. A bit earlier in Matthew 6, we talked about, we referenced um, verse 621, but in Matthew 6, as Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount, he brings up three areas that as believers, we're reminded that all we do is lived in the presence of God. So in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, and if you're sitting somewhere and you can have your Bible open or check it out on your phone, do that with me because we're going to, eventually we're going to read through these verses here in a moment. But so in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus is addressing giving, prayer, and fasting. So 
just I just want to give a quick refresher um, or an intro to the Sermon on the Mount. This is really quick, all right? But I want you again, I'm just going to encourage you to take some time to read Matthew chapters 5 through 7 on your own when you have a moment to sit with it. So the Sermon on the Mount is addressing what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that first step in becoming a citizen is realizing that you are spiritually bankrupt before God. You are poor in spirit. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 shows us where true Christian character takes root. It's when we see our utter depravity, our utter sinfulness, and our inability to please God on our own. Justification is by faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We are not saved by our works, but once we are saved, our lives will reflect the character of those that are true citizens of the kingdom. God's kingdom turns what the world considers blessedness totally upside down. So after Jesus reveals what Christian character looks like, he moves on to what our influence as believers will be in the world. And here you think of the examples he gives of salt and light. And then we move on to see that God requires a righteousness in his people that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. Theirs was outward, it was not inward. Ours should be inward and then outward. We have um, we come to the things like the don'ts, the don't murdered or don't commit adultery. And the heart is being addressed in these issues too. Think, whoever is angry with the brother commits murder in their heart. And then we get to Matthew 6, where we're going to begin taking a look. And Jesus here is addressing the do's. These are the things that Jesus tells us to do, the good things that we should be practicing. And in these verses, we're going to see how Jen Wilkin puts it in her study. She said, he will point us to an abundant faith, one that breathes righteousness into even the, quote, secret moments of our lives. So we're going to jump in here on Matthew chapter 6. And I really think it's important to read these verses together before we move on. So um, listen or read along with me. I'm reading from the ESV, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret." and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so these are the practices mentioned above, giving, prayer, fasting. They are meant to worship God. And these were the three primary religious pillars to the Jewish audience that Jesus was addressing. They were not meant to bring attention to our self-appointed righteousness or, quote, religious piety. They aren't meant to practice so others will see us and praise us. Um, I want to give a little quote here again from Precept Austin on this verse that he they said, and I feel bad I say they said, because I don't know who this quote is from, but I'll link to the specific site that I used. It's um, referencing Matthew chapter 6, early verses 1 through 4. But righteousness before men to be noticed by them is self-righteousness. Righteousness that God accepts is his character reproduced in and through us for his good pleasure. Then when others see this, quote, supernatural righteousness in our lives, they give the glory to God. So our problem, it's end quote there, but our problem isn't in practicing these areas in our walk with the Lord, because Jesus assumes we will. He actually states the word when, you know, when we give, when we pray, when we fast, not if, but it's in the motives behind why we're doing what we're doing. In our sinful hearts, we can so often be doing good things, but with the wrong motives. Our lives are tainted with self-centeredness, pride, self-righteousness, um, in some ways that, that even, I'm going to give an example for me, some ways that I can subtly direct the praise to myself instead of to the Lord is by sharing about my time in prayer or my prayer life in a boastful way that I want people to think more highly of me. Maybe I share about a current spiritual fast or what good deed I recently did for someone. Guess what? There's no reward for those. Matthew 6, 1 says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, the glory went to me and not to God in those moments. My deep down desire was I wanted others to think more highly of me, and God wasn't glorified. My motives were tainted. They were not righteous. They were self-righteous. Charles Spurgeon says, there's no reward from God to those who seek it from men. So Matthew 6, 1 starts with the word beware. What a, I just, what a, that's a pretty strong word, right? Which can also be translated as take heed or be on guard. It's in the imperative, which it means to do this continually. So we need to be continually determining what our motives are behind what we do. Why am I praying or fasting or giving or helping others or being kind? Is it for the praise of me or to worship God in secret? As Christians, we need to continue to self-examine ourselves. 
we will continue to sin, but we also know we have an advocate before the Father to cling to and continue to seek to be filled with the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what appears to be so selfless may be just a very subtle form of selfishness. According to our Lord, it comes to this, many by nature desire the praise of man more than the praise of God. In desiring the praise of man, what he is really concerned about is his good opinion of himself. And the last analysis, it always comes to this. We are either pleasing ourselves or else we are pleasing God. And I have one more quote here from Martin Lloyd-Jones I want to read. The Christian is to live in such a way that men looking at him and seeing the quality of his life will glorify God. End quote there. So as we pray and give and fast in secret, this shows a trust and a reliance on God. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a life that was directed in every way on only pleasing God. His motives were pure and not self-centered or self-righteous, but purely righteous. His whole life was given to bring glory to God. This is to be the purpose of our lives for those of us in Christ. Listen, we will never completely meet the standard set before us in the Sermon on the Mount. But as believers, our character will reflect the character of those in God's kingdom. We are able as believers to live out these kingdom characteristics. Again, not perfectly. We are a continual work in progress, right? But humility and a desire to think and act rightly will be present. And although we're going to fail many times, our lives will reflect God's righteousness. There are times when it's just not even possible to fast or pray or give in secret, right? People are going to know, and they may need to know. Fasting is an area I think about this, especially within our families. People are going to wonder why you're not eating, okay? But it comes down to our motives again. My heart attitude should be one of only seeking the approval of God. And one way to get inside our true motives is to ask ourselves, would I still do this if no one ever knew I did it? Let me repeat that again. Would I still do this if no one ever knew I did it? Is God enough for us? Or when praying in a group to ask ourselves, am I desiring to pray so I just sound more spiritual or more holy to this group of people. So I want to close kind of this part of what we're talking about with some words from Martin Lloyd-Jones from his book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do things as you are moved by God and led by the Holy Spirit, and then forget all about them. How is this to be done? There is only one answer, and that is that we should have such a love for God that we have no time to think about ourselves. We shall never get rid of self by concentrating on self. The only hope is to be so consumed by love that we have no time to think about ourselves. In other words, if we want to implement this teaching, we must look at Christ dying on Calvary's hill and think of his life and all he endured and suffered. And as we look at him, realize what he, we, what he has done for us. End quote there. So as I close that particular section, ladies, we need to keep our eyes on Christ and live to please an audience of one. 
And now we're going to kind of move on to the motives of others. So have you ever determined that you know exactly why someone did what they did? Have you ever had someone judge your motives and you know that they were nowhere close as to why you did or said what you said, right? One example from God's word that comes to my mind is when Hannah is praying in the temple. And this is um, just from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 9 through 28. And it's where Eli thinks she's drunk. Verse 13 says, Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Okay, Eli was not thinking the best of her here. And he determined he knew what was really going on there. And really what was going on in her heart even. Here was a godly woman pouring out her heart to the Lord in prayer. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 is where I want us to begin because there's so much covered in this verse on thinking the best of others. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we're going to focus mostly on the believes all things. Love hopes the best, right? It believes the best. It doesn't presume the worst. It isn't suspicious of the motives of others. Just read through all of 1 Corinthians 13. Spend some time there. Let me just give a quick note here before I move forward. Okay, this does not mean a blind trust. We still need to act responsibly and seek truth. Our attitude should be one of trust, and we need to let God be the one to determine the motives and the heart attitude of others. Um, Vine's Dictionary defines this section here, believes all things. It says, it does not mean that it accepts as true all that is stated. Love is never taken in thus. It is, however, ready to impute the best motives even to one whose act is unkind or detrimental. In bearing with evil conduct, it seeks to avoid undue suspicion where there is any element of doubt as to the real intention Love decides to regard it as good and honest, end quote there. All right, so love does to others what we would desire others to do to us. I personally don't appreciate when my motives are questioned or motives are imputed to me that weren't even there. We can too often read into another's motives. See, if if my personal bent is to think negative thoughts, I can too easily think others are feeling this way too, and it may not be the case at all. Jonathan Edwards says, How often on thorough examination have we found better things of others than we have heard, and that at first we were ready to judge. End quote there. I've been guilty of jumping to conclusions only to realize I completely misjudged the situation. And this probably happens most within our own homes. And our marriages really probably being a number one area that we deal with this in. We've been with this person, our spouses, for a long time. And we can think that we know what they're thinking and the reason behind their actions. This is a relationship that we need to prioritize and not judging motives because it's going to get us into trouble. We need to think the best of our spouses. We love them. They love us, and their desire is most likely not to hurt us. Luke 6.31 tells us, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So we need to think the best of our spouses, kids, church family, friends. This is how we desire others to treat us. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 reminds us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Love always thinks the best. It never presumes the worst. In our flesh, we are so ready to think the worst. But love, as in the verse here in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, reminds us it does the opposite and it believes the best. It's a love that has faith in God and that he will work all things out together according to his divine plans. This love gives the benefit of the doubt and seeks to see people at their best and not at their worst. John Calvin writes that Paul is not saying that a Christian strips himself of wisdom and discernment, not that he has forgotten how distinguished from black and white, end quote there. So it's not being gullible or naive. And if there is clearly sin and, you know, something that needs to be addressed, then it needs to be addressed in a godly and in a right way. And a great way to think about this is someone is innocent until proven guilty. We don't know all the details and I can't see into the heart of another person, but our pride would rather determine that we know best and we know all. So on the motives of others, let's believe well of them unless it is clearly evident that this is not the case. And even so, we need to deal with truth in a godly and right manner. And as we do this, we are trusting the Lord. So when love has no evidence, it believes the best. When the evidence is adverse, it hopes for the best. And when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it still courageously waits. That's a quote from an unknown source that I don't know. So if you've heard that and you know, let me know that so I can give proper credit there. William Barclay on Believes All Things from his commentary, he says that love is completely trusting. This characteristic has a twofold aspect. In relation to God, it means that love takes God at his word and can take every promise which begins whosoever and say, that means me. In relation to our fellow men, it means that love always believes the best about other people. It's often true that we make people what we believe them to be. If we show that we do not trust people, we may make them untrustworthy. If we show people that we trust them absolutely, we may make them trustworthy. End quote there. And Pastor Stephen Cole, in a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, that was titled, What Love Looks Like, he shared, I'm thankful that my parents trusted me as a teenager. It made me want to live up to that trust. One of my friends had parents who did not trust him, and he lived up to their distrust. Sometimes you will get ripped off when you trust, but love persists in trusting, end quote there. So we desire to change from the heart here. We see this in ourselves and we don't like it because it's sin. And as a believer, I want to hate my sin and turn from it. So where do we begin? Because in Christ, we have all we need to change. God doesn't want us to just look good on the outside. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And Matthew 15, 8 tells us, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We need to begin by getting honest with the Lord and examining our hearts before him. True change needs to begin with us seeing our sin, realizing we are helpless in our own strength to change, and looking to Jesus. True change begins with a person, and his name is Jesus. Ed Welch shares in a helpful little booklet called Motives, Why Do I Do the Things I Do? He says, 
That is why the path of change goes through the heart and continues on to the gospel, where God chose to most fully reveal himself in the death and resurrection of Christ. It is in Jesus that the Father ultimately displays his goodness, his power, and his glory. And it is in Jesus that we find the power to change. End quote. So as we come to know true forgiveness and the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, ladies, here is where we can begin to respond to others in love and trust. It begins as we get to know more of this heavenly father and he delights in revealing himself to us. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's a beautiful verse. So let me enter with some words from Ed Welch again. He says, more important than knowing your motives is knowing God and God is very generous in revealing himself. He should be your primary focus. We should be spending more time looking at Christ than inspecting our own hearts. Because if you are growing in the knowledge of God, you will be changed even to the depths of your heart. End quote there. We need to look to the cross, dear friends. And I want to end with these words from R.C. Sprawl. He says, To know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me, is indeed my ultimate consolation. Jesus is enough, friends. So ladies, thank you again for your time today. And you can read a very big portion of this over um, of this podcast over at the blog, and I'll have all the links there mentioned. And before I go, I want to share my resource of the month, since it seems the podcast has gone to monthly in this particular season of my life. Thank you all for your kind words and your love to me. I'm so thankful for your reviews on iTunes. That has been a sweet blessing. And for right now, at least in this current season of my life, monthly is what is working with my schedule. And I've been kind of aiming for the second Tuesday of the month. So I'm hoping to stick with that. And if you want just updates or I'm changing that, please always come subscribe to my newsletter. You can find it over. If you click on the free library, you get some free resources along with getting my newsletters and just things that's going on over at the blog. You get a little more insight information there. So let me get back to my resource of the month though. It is the Women's Hope Podcast. It is back. And it's back with Kimberly Cummings and another who I just love. She is just a sweetheart. And I know I've learned so much from her and I'm thankful to get to glean from her again. But she is my faraway friend who I want to get to one day soon. But she's also back with a a new co-host. It's Dr. Shelby Cullen. And they are just beginning a four-part series on discipleship titled Getting to the Heart of Biblical Discipleship. So check it out and I'll give you a link to their um, how to find their podcast in the show notes. So thank you so much for being here with me today, friends, and have a very blessed week. Mm -hmm.